something been curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal, commence episode now. All systems remain nominal, 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Well you join us for a special occasion, although we should have been a bit earlier in the month for World Space Week because that's when our official anniversary would be, but that is what you're joining us for, our ninth anniversary as a podcast and the first episode of our tenth season. And because of that, it wouldn't be the same without uh, my regular co-host and partner in crime, John Berger. How you doing, sir? Well, it's been a while since we've seen each other there, sonny. <laughs> yeah, has been for sure. <laughs> <laughs> busy. Just things have been stupid busy as of late. Yeah, take us through that a little bit. Finally, the folks who do Warframe had their physical convention after four years, so that was that was a big one. But it's like starting in late June, I made an agreement with the guy who who works with those of us who are Warframe creators, as they call us. It's like, hey, I got props that I want to bring up to you guys for the convention. How can we do this? So he said, all right, well, come on up on this day. So I started working on some of the props that I was going to bring up to them. Not realizing how stressful that would be because the one prop took me almost an entire month to build. And that's like working on it every night after work. So I was like, that, that was a bit of a stress, you know, and then I got those up to them on July. But then I still had another prop that I had to build for the convention itself in August because I was going to give that prop to one of the community directors when, when we went up there. So it's like for two months straight, it was just prop building. I was so burned out on props when I was done. I didn't want to build another damn prop by the time the convention was over. And of course, so you know, I gave it a week and I started working on another prop. Of course. Of course, <laughs> that's what I do. But yeah, it's it's been absolutely crazy. But you know, the props went over really well. There was a point where I had one of the most popular guns in the game. That was what I was carrying. My daughter was carrying another popular one that lit up and all that sort of stuff. We actually had a line of people to hold the props and take photos with them. It's not like we had a booth. It's just we were walking around and people were like, oh, that's cool, blah, blah, blah. And we let them hold the props and take pictures of it because we think that makes better memory for them. So we'll let them hold the props. That's fine. And then as that one was... was uh, getting pictures somebody else got oh can i get one too and then we just had this line for like a half an hour we could not move because people just wanted to get pictures with the props so was this your daughter's first tenocon or yes yes finally because she was going to go to the one in 2020 but that's when COVID hit Mm -hmm. so she's been waiting for years and she was absolutely thrilled this is my first year as a creator so i got to hang out with other creators who i've been friends with for a while now now i actually got to meet a lot of them it was a good time it was a good time this one you will appreciate so it was one of those things that wasn't meant to be because tenocon was saturday and a lot of us weren't leaving until tuesday because we didn't know what else they had planned so digital extremes had stuff planned for creators on Friday and Sunday. But then Monday, we were kind of like, all right, now what? Well, one of my good creator friends, 
she left her hoodie at her hotel in London, Ontario. And she's like, oh my God, is anybody coming to Toronto? Da 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 da. I you know, really want to get this back. So at the same time, my one friend from Romania was like, can we go out to Toronto on Monday? Because like we were her wheels, basically. You know, we, we picked her up at the Toronto airport and so forth. So she and I were hanging together most of the time. I'm glad I brought the minivan because there were six of us in the minivan. So one of them actually lives out near Toronto. And he was like, hey, could you drop me off at home? It's like, okay. So dropped him off. The other guy was like, oh, hey, I have to I have to take off from the uh, Toronto airport. Can I just, you know, can I go out with you? And then I'll just sleep at the airport. I was like, all right, if that's what you want. But we got to this place to drop off the hoodie, and it's called Stormcrow Manor. It's this like this old Gothic style stone building. It is a nerd restaurant, and they call themselves that. Because <laughs> when you get there, it, it's an it's gorgeous building. If you go inside, there's a bunch of horror, gothic, video game things like it's mostly like meant to be a darker thing because it's you know it's a gothic style building. So you know they'll have these LED screens that are meant to be paintings, and if you watch long enough, they'll move. You know stuff like that. But you know they'll they'll have Halo weapons here and there. They'll have stuff from Twin Peaks. You know, things like that. So it is more of a horror vibe, but outside, all of the tables have marble tabletops, and all of them are etched with some kind of board game, whether it's checkers, chess, a grid for Dungeons and Dragons, wow. whatever. Every single table is set up that way. And their menu is all pop culture and video game based. So all <laughs> the menu items come from various horror movies, Dungeons and Dragons, Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who, all of their entries are like that. But the really cool one was that they have this dungeon, I forget the exact name, but it's some kind of, of dungeon burger where they come out with this big piece of paper that has a whole bunch of options and they give you a D20 and you have to roll for whatever your burger is going to be. <laughs> so, but you have to roll for each section of it. So you have to roll for the bun, you have to roll for the type of meat. So it could be chicken, fish, beef, bison, you know, stuff like that. They'll just mix it up. I had to re-roll that one because I got fish the first time and I hate fish. I took a, you know, did a safety roll. <laughs> you know, and, but then you roll for the condiments, the meat, the buns, the toppings. You just roll for the whole thing. So you don't know what you're going to get until you roll the dice. And then for an extra, I think it was like seven bucks, they deliver it to you in this big wooden chest that's lit up with red LEDs and dry ice. So it's got this fog effect coming out of it. That's how they serve it to you. Then they give you the D20 that you use to roll it, as well as a little D&D figurine to go with it. It was really cool. I don't know if you, I did post the video. I thought I posted the video on Twitter. If not, I'll, I'll have to forward it to you. It was very cool. So a lot of us got to hang out one last time before we ended up finally heading back our, to our different homes from TennoCon. And what's also really cool is that one of the voice actresses from the game lives in Toronto. So she was able to hang out with us. Yeah, Storm Crow Manor. And if you're in Toronto, I cannot recommend that place enough. It is so cool. They even have like a, a neon sign in the window saying something like warning nerds or something like that or, or nerds welcome or something to that effect. They are very clearly are advertising themselves as a nerd restaurant and it's <laughs> awesome. It is so cool. Because when you were talking about they, they've all got named burgers and things after mm -hmm. geek culture. It took me back to TGP nominal honorary crew member Dan Pye. Because he used to run a geek cafe mm -hmm. called the Dark Matter Cafe. 
Yeah, all the burgers and things were all named after yeah. geek culture. Uh, even down to the fact that if you needed to use the facilities, if you needed to use the restroom in the Dark Matter Cafe, you actually going a TARDIS. <laughs> now, they don't have that, but I do remember that the bathroom is just loaded with comic book wallpaper. <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm looking at the menu now. Uh, uh, this podcast is not sponsored by Stormcrow, but honestly, I had such a good time. I have no problem giving them the advertisement on this one. But it's like some of their menu entries are Calamari of Cthulhu <laughs> is one of their appetizers. Tater Tots of Terror. <laughs> one of their shareable platters, going more toward video games, Red Dead Nacho Redemption. <laughs> so, you know, they go all over. They go from D&D to video games. Oh, the Dungeon Burger, that's the one. That's that's the one where you roll it. And uh, you will appreciate this one, one of their other burgers, the Botany Bay Burger. <laughs> Good old calm. <laughs> I love, well, Muppet references. The one is Pulled Pigs in Space Sandwich. Oh, cool. You see? <laughs> You know, cloudy with a chance of meat sauces. <laughs> so that that's hell. That's even just a cartoon. That's you know, yeah. And and all of their uh, their soups is under a category called Dragon Bowl Z. <laughs> it, the place is just so cool. We had so much fun there. But then of course you know Tenocon itself was awesome. But if you don't play Warframe, I can tell you all about Tenocon. But it's not going to matter <laughs> if you don't play Warframe. Who cares? But that's the thing, you see, because it's such a niche convention. Yeah, it is. Everybody is, you know, pretty much there for the same reason. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not like going to like a normal Comic Con where, you know, there's so many different reasons for people to be there and not everybody's into the same thing. Right. Uh, but when it's all revolving around one franchise, then that's completely different game altogether. Oh, it's it's Excuse definitely more of a family. F I don't know what you mean. It's definitely more of a family feel for sure. You know because you know even stuff that might seem small to someone on the outside, we're freaking out and we're loving it just to talk to like the devs and so forth. I mean, granted, I'm already friends with them, but you can tell when people there are new or you know when they're not creators just because of how excited they get because they see that person who is on the you know the streams that they do and they get all excited just because of that celebrity status from that person you know it's definitely fun for those of us who are into warframe to finally have a physical tanocon again was amazing it's, it's just that i burned myself out for like two months beforehand building props and doing prop work every single night i never thought i'd be tired of doing props but there was a point where i was like oh i'm so glad i'm done and talking of props, you're involved with a project that's uh, quite important based around props. Kind of. What Digital Extremes does every year is they partner with the Princess Margaret Foundation up in Toronto, and it's they call it the Quest to Conquer Cancer, and it's to try to get donations to try to help the Princess Margaret Foundation find ways to battle cancer, hopefully find ways to eradicate various cancers and so forth. I took part of that last year, I'm taking part of it this year, and what I'm doing this year is that for a donation of $25 or more, you get a chance to win a special Quest to Conquer Cancer-themed version of one of my props. And you've been doing a lot of streaming around that, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, I figured, how else am I going to get donations if I don't stream? So I've been streaming a bit more this month than usual to try to drive those donations in. So we'll we'll see what happens. I mean, we've still got a little bit left in the month. And um, we'll see if I can hit the goal. So we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, 
we're going to do what we do best, and that's talk about space. So don't go anywhere. Hi, I'm Matt Damon. I play astronaut Mark Watney in The Martian. In the story, my character is accidentally stranded on Mars. Sending people to Mars and returning them safely is the challenge of a generation. The whole world held its breath when the Curiosity rover landed in 2012. The boot prints of astronauts will follow those rover tracks, thanks to innovations happening today. NASA's journey to Mars begins on the International Space Station, some 250 miles overhead, where we're learning how humans can thrive over long periods without gravity. Here at home, people are working across the country on the new Orion spacecraft and Space Launch System rocket that will carry astronauts farther than ever before. When we invent new technologies for exploration, it benefits all of humanity. But more than that, the journey to Mars will forever change our history books, rewriting what we know about the Red Planet and expanding a human presence deeper into the solar system. Follow NASA's journey to Mars at www.nasa.gov. Have you ever wanted to get far, far away from it all? To a planet where no one will ever find you? Well, that place is closer than you think. Welcome to Earth's wild Atlantic way in Ireland. A welcoming pre-hyperdrive society. Friendly indigenous wildlife. And more than a few fun activities to train your apprentice. Earth's Wild Atlantic Way. Shooting location of Star Wars, The Last Jedi. Escape the dark side along Earth's Wild Atlantic Way. It's the perfect place to get away from it all. This is TGP Nominal. Welcome back to TGP Nominal. Now, as you know, at the beginning of each show, we say that this show is your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Well, sometimes we do space, sometimes we do science fiction, but we decided, hey, well, just mix it up a bit and do a bit of both. So what do you got there, John? Oh, I'm starting off. Oh, yeah. That's a new one. Decided to throw a curveball at me, I see. <laughs> so we have a new mission heading off to a new asteroid. Now, is it Psyche or Psyche? I think it's Psyche. Psyche, yeah. That's what I thought. Okay. So the NASA Psyche spacecraft is finally on its way to, uh, well, an asteroid called, interestingly enough, Psyche. So that took off on a Falcon Heavy on October 13th. It's now on its way. Two-way communication has been established. So, so far, the spacecraft is in good condition. So this is a Discovery-class planetary science mission whose destination is an object in the asteroid belt called Psyche. And it's made primarily of metal, which is what is really prompted the whole interest in this one. And it could be, this is what they're trying to figure out, is this the core part of a larger object that outer layers got stripped away? Is this the way the object was formed? They don't know. But obviously most asteroids and planetary bodies have some type of metal that they might see. But this is one where it's mostly metal. So they're, they're interested to see what happens with this one. 
So it was originally scheduled to launch back in October of 2022, but delays during testing of flight software uh, forced NASA to skip various opportunities to launch it. But it finally did launch now, which is, what, 14 months later? So it'll spend 26 months orbiting Psyche in four different orbits, and it's just going to be studying it the whole time. Unfortunately, nothing will be brought back, but they do say that this is the first time that they're going to be visiting a world that has a metal surface. Again, the the whole thing is about its origins, to find out how it was formed, whether it was part of another planet and the outer areas got shed away, or somehow it simply became enriched with a bunch of different metals. So it's equipped with a camera, a gamma ray and neutron spectrometer, spectrometer, me English goodly, and a magnetometer. See, this is the kind of stuff that NASA's good at. Yeah. And we have things to talk about later, about things that NASA probably shouldn't be doing. (laughs) Now, the weird thing about this mission was um, something I found out, and basically, as as you mentioned, it was launched on a Falcon Heavy. Apparently, from this moment onwards, the Falcon Heavies will not be landing the center core anymore. Uh, I mean, if it's a long-distance mission, it's not surprising. If they need the whatever their payload is to have that extra boost, Yeah, they're going to end up using up all the fuel. Yeah, so they have decided that it's it's not worth their time and effort landing the, uh, the center core. So it's only the, the side boosters that are going to be landing. Yeah, I wish they'd find a way to do something other than just throw it into orbit, though. Throw it into some kind of a graveyard way out there where, you know, it'll never have a chance of of coming back or running into something else. (laughs) Like a Starlink, you mean? (laughs) Like a (laughs) Starlink. That would be funny. It would be ironic, for sure. (laughs) Man, have you seen a lot of the photos coming out now about Starlink interfering, especially radio astronomy? Uh, Yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah, this is... I appreciate trying to get global communication, no matter where you are on the surface of the planet, but, I mean, it's not going to be without its drawbacks. And some of the photos that we're seeing from the radio telescopes coming back are just ridiculously bad, with streaks all over the place. So, I don't know. What's the balancing point on that one? And it's not going to get any easier with um, no. Amazon. Amazon's doing it, and isn't Europe? Not, not ESA, but Europe, they've also got a company over there that's ready to do their own too, don't they? Uh, is it Utelsat? I can't remember. It's yeah, one that of might those. be it. Yeah. Yeah. So that that is a problem that's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, it won't be long before uh, <laughs> the Earth looks like Saturn with rings. <laughs> yeah. Whilst we're on the subject of asteroids, you remember the DART mission from uh, September last year? Yeah. Which, if, if people out there don't know, it basically they crashed a spacecraft into an asteroid called uh, Dimorphos mm-hmm. and moved it slightly, when I say slightly, tens of metres of its trajectory. And now DART, which stands for Double Asteroid Redirection Test, used a spacecraft which was about the size of a fridge. Now, by successfully crashing directly into Dimorphos, NASA was testing if it could use similar methods to knock an asteroid off course if one is in danger of hitting the Earth. However, (laughs) a teacher and his class studying the rock have now discovered that since its collision, it has moved in an strange and an unexpected way. 
Using their telescope, a team of children and their teacher, Jonathan Swift, at the Thatcher School in California, have found that after the collision, Dimorphos's orbit continuously slowed after the impact, which is unusual and unexpected. As reported in The New Scientist, the team presented their findings at a meeting of the American Astronomical Society, and then after discovering the unusual behaviour of Dimorphos, it is likely that NASA will have to factor all this information from this school's findings if they ever launch another asteroid redirection mission in the future. So it's slowing down? Yeah. Even though the hit accelerated its orbit? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and they cannot understand why it's done what it's done. It's it's really weird. That doesn't make sense. It reduced its mass. It accelerated its orbit, but it's slowing down. I mean, granted, <laughs> you and I are not exactly Einsteins in this field, but that doesn't make sense. If they decide to do anything like it again, is it going to happen the same way, or is it going to completely change its trajectory or it could do almost anything it's it sounds like it's an unpredictable method yeah curious if it slows down if it goes back to the speed it was at before even though it has less mass because obviously you know it got hit and a bunch of stuff ejected into space i'm just curious to see if it slows down to the same speed and if so why This is something it they... sounds like there's something else going on out there that we don't understand. Yeah, another form of physics that we're not aware of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's what science is all about. I mean, everything is a theory. You know, there are theories that are getting disproven now because of technology. And who knows? <laughs> hmm. So obviously India has been having some very successful missions, whether, you know, getting things in the moon orbit or whatever. Now they are working to land astronauts on the moon in 2040. Right now their goals are to put an astronaut on the moon's surface by 2040 and build another space station around Earth by 2035. Back on August 23rd, they became the fourth nation ever to land a spacecraft on the moon. And recently, they've decided that they want to become a bit more ambitious with their space program. So future moon exploration efforts are going to include a series of additional robotic missions, a new launch pad, as well as a new heavy lift launch vehicle. Uh, So they said that they've delayed their human space flight program. They're now aiming to fly three astronauts to low Earth orbit in 2025. Uh, which is going to feature 20 different tests, including three uncrewed missions to test the launch vehicle uh, over the remainder of this year, as well as all of next year. So in the middle of the 2030s, they hope to have a 20-ton space station in a fixed orbit with capabilities to host astronauts for 15 to 20 days at a time. This is not going to be the International Space Station, where you can stay up there for a year or whatever. But still, you got to start somewhere. Further, they're also planning a Venus orbiter mission to study the surface. Right now, they're developing payloads for that one. Uh, A second orbiter mission to Mars is ready to... uh, Well, they're working on that one. So their first one was launched in 2013 and was in the atmosphere for eight years before it lost contact with Earth last year. So the follow-up mission is likely to include cameras to study the planet's crust and may also include a lander, uh, although they're still planning that one, so they don't have anything finalized for that one yeah so it's not just the u.s russia and europe looks like india well china as well looks like india's starting to get uh, involved with a lot of space stuff too and awesome you know that's always something awesome to see 
India is a force to be reckoned with, I think. They have been launching some very successful missions over the last probably 10 years. Their success rate in launching has been really good. In fact, the Indian Space Agency, ISRO, helped the UK out quite a bit when the Russians refused to send any of our stuff into space because it might have something to do with the government. The Indian Space Agency bailed us out. So, <laughs> is there any update on the? Uh, aren't you guys supposed to have a launch pad up in like Scotland, or something like that? Uh, yeah, it's gone a bit quiet. Yeah, I haven't heard anything lately because they wanted to see what was going on with this spaceport down in Cornwall. But after the Virgin Orbit situation, yeah. I haven't heard anything from Spaceport Cornwall since then. But. There are still a couple of companies that are wanting to use the facilities up Saxo Vords up in in Scotland, and there is training centres and all kinds of stuff already set up there, but no launch pad as such. So I just mm. got to wait and see. I, I'm trying to make contact with a, a couple of people up there, see if we can find out what's going on. The the thing I think is brilliant about it is the setup that they're proposing is going to be very similar to the setup that they have in New Zealand for Rocket Lab. What they're proposing is to send a few of their specialists over from New Zealand to Scotland to help them set up, which would be cool. Yeah. There's no reason why you guys can't have your own launch pad, really. You're ideally located oh, yeah. far enough away from many other land masses that, depending on the trajectory obviously mm-hmm. you know you're in a, you guys are in a good spot too it's been a long time coming because i mean the last time we were launching rockets was like 1971 and we did that in mm-hmm. australia so <laughs> <laughs> an irish news channel has corrected a slightly embarrassing mistake after reporting a suspected meteor strike on a beach in dublin Announcing that the rock might have smashed into the beach in Port Marnock, Virgin Media News sent a journalist to the scene of the crater to find out more. At the scene, the reporter was joined by Dave Kennedy, a local space enthusiast who discovered the impact site whilst walking his dog. When he discovered the hole, Mr Kennedy said that he felt complete shock. I knew immediately that it was an impact site whilst holding a rock that he believed could be the meteorite itself. Asked what it was about the rock that made him think it came from space Mr Kennedy said the actual weight of it and its density you're definitely going to have to get it checked out but unfortunately for Mr Kennedy and Virgin Media News the meteorite mystery was far less exciting footage posted on social media revealed that the crater was just a big hole that had been dug with a plastic spade A Virgin Media News report the following day said the mystery of the hole found on North Dublin Beach was apparently solved. Footage emerged last night of two men digging the hole in Port Marnock's beach. After the crater was revealed to be nothing more than a big hole, Mr Kennedy said he was disappointed but still planned to get the rock analysed just in case. (laughs) Oh my god. Just in case. (laughs) That's saving face on that one. Just in case, we'll get it analyzed to make it seem like there's a shred of of legitimacy to it. (laughs) Yeah, that tickled me, that story. I I saw it, I thought, yeah, I've got to include this. (laughs) So we're going to go a little bit into sci-fi here. You know me, as much as I appreciate Doctor Who, I'm not a big Doctor Who fan. Uh, Are you a Whovian? Kind of. (laughs) Kind of? Well, it turns out that there is going to be a limited 
collector's edition set. Uh, there's only going to be 6,000 of these made. Amazon has already sold out. The only other place to get these is Walmart, and they might have sold out as well. So it's going to be a Blu-ray. Yeah, I know, physical media. Imagine that. It's going to be a Blu-ray box set coming out on November 14th, and it comes with an exclusive figure set, including all five doctors represented in the collection. But the big thing here, it's going to start the first four seasons with Christopher Eccleston, David Tennant as the ninth and tenth incarnation, and they will all be remastered for this Blu-ray set. Uh, it's also going to contain various incarnations with Matt Smith, John Hurt, Peter Capaldi, Joe Martin, Jodie Whittaker, and so forth. 60 Blu-rays, 7,800 minutes of Doctor Who content for $175. You'd think something like this with 60 discs, plus figurines and all that, this thing probably would have gone for four or $500. 175 bucks for the Blu-ray set. It's no wonder they're selling out. Yeah, for sure. Wow. You know, e even with the decline of physical media, which actually is not true, but I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I'll get angry. <laughs> and, and also uh, on that, the BBC have announced for the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who, which is in November, on the BBC iPlayer streaming service, there's going to be eight hundred episodes of I Doctor did hear Who, about that. Uh, Torchwood and all the other spin-off series that uh, is on there. But the first ever Doctor Who episode will not be included in that list. Have they found it? They have it. They do have it, okay. But the family of the person who wrote that part of the timeline will not give them permission to use it. Why? Basically, there's a big hoo-ha. The BBC had uh, an argument with the guy who wrote it, so his estate will not let them use, use the original first episode. Curious about what that argument was about, and uh, did they say what the argument was about and why they're still holding BBC to the fire for it? I'm not 100% sure. I know it got a little bit political, so I'm not... I'm, Really? Not, not. Uh, when I say political, I mean with. Uh, it's to do with the way that the BBC do things. They, they, oh. they weren't happy about stuff. But I think there's about four episodes from the original first series that they won't be able to use, and the first episode is one of them. Strangely, though, this is what I don't understand. The first episode of Doctor Who is available on BritBox, which is partly owned by the BBC. Ah. Uh. Okay. <laughs> Unless they aren't aware that BritBox is partially owned by the BBC. I don't know. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but yeah, 800 episodes. I mean, there's there's loads on there at the moment from Christopher Eccleston's timeline right up to Jodie Whittaker. But these ones, it's, it's near enough every episode, plus Torchwood, uh, the Sarah Jane Adventures, and Doctor Who Confidential, which I used to love when that was on TV because it's all behind-the-scenes stuff. And, and that's the main thing I like about the DVDs and Blu-rays on, on a lot of the Star Wars things is the behind-the-scenes yes. making of things. So there's, there's there's lots of Doctor Who behind-the-scenes stuff to, to watch as well. But, yeah, that's a lot of viewing. <laughs> mm -hmm. On average, what are the episodes? Between a half hour? Were they always like an hour long? Or were they half hour? Uh, they were about half an hour, 45 minutes, but they had a massive arc. It, the original Doctor Who's, there was a sort of like a six-episode arc, 
Yeah, it's not so much like that. You might get two, maybe three episodes as an arc, but uh, not so much uh, these days, but yeah. Well, I mean, even if they were a half hour, 800 episodes, 400 hours of viewing. <laughs> I mean, that that's part of what triggers me, that people are like, oh, John, you should watch The Expanse, you should watch this, you should watch that. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't have time to sit down and watch multiple seasons of a show anymore yeah that's why i, I kind of gave up with marvel because there's too much of it <laughs> oh yay i just stick with the movies i haven't had a chance to watch any of the tv spinoffs it's an exciting time for doctor who and i, I, I know this isn't uh, what i'm going to say isn't exactly sci-fi but when we're talking on the bbc there's a kids tv show called blue peter that's it's having its 65th anniversary this year as well which is the longest-running kids' TV show in the world. Which one? Blue Peter. Don't know it. It's basically a magazine show for kids. It covers all kinds of things, um, things that they can make. Uh, They talk to famous people. They do challenges where they sort of, like, do exercises with the Marines and things like that where they have to try and keep up with them and all that kind of stuff. Kids can go in for competitions and all that kind of thing, uh, raise money for charities, all kinds of stuff. And it's been going, yeah, say, 65 years. So, yeah, longest-running kids' TV show. Cool. And Richard Garriott's been on it. That's <laughs> uh, no surprise. <laughs> yeah, well, we've talked about this before, how NASA is really good at these kinds of missions, the planetary ones and... Uh, New Horizons and stuff like that. And, you know, you and I have talked before about how stuff like Artemis and the SLS, Mm -hmm. they probably shouldn't really be doing this. So we've talked so much about how freaking expensive the SLS is. It's just an absolutely ridiculous cost. So right now, the most recent estimate on how much it costs just to build an SLS rocket is $2.2 billion. That's just the rocket. Mm-hmm. That doesn't include the ground systems, the payload, the integration. That's just the physical rocket. Well, apparently, we are not the only ones who think that the SLS is really expensive. So does NASA's Inspector General. So Paul Martin says that basically NASA's been making promises about how they're going to reduce costs. They're going to reduce costs. Don't worry about that. Da 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 da. And Paul Martin has basically said it's not going to happen. In fact, in a recent new report, he writes that the cost of building the rockets is actually likely to increase over time. Uh, he said that our analysis shows a single SLS Block 1B will cost at least 2.5 billion to produce, not including systems engineering and integration costs. And NASA's aspirational goal to achieve a cost savings of 50% is highly unrealistic. So uh, independent reviews of it have found that NASA is unlikely to have any kind of sustainable deep space operation program built around the SLS. Not saying they can't do it, just not around the SLS. So if you look into Martin's report, the SLS rocket is powered by four main engines, which all come from the space shuttle program, because keep in mind, the whole reason for the SLS was basically to keep the space shuttle people employed and to keep using technology from the space shuttle, because otherwise, you know, Boeing and Northrop, you know, they're going to have to deal with other issues. So the cost of the four engines alone is $582 million dollars. So that's $146 million per engine. So a single engine costs roughly the same amount that they paid SpaceX for the Europa Clipper mission. It's $146 million per engine, but they paid $178 million to SpaceX to launch the Europa Clipper. 
But he said the main reason why the estimate of 50% is unlikely is simply because it's magical and wishful thinking. Because Boeing is the contractor on the core stage of the SLS, and Boeing, being a private profit-driven company, historically has increased costs under their contracts instead of reduced them. So the report also says that despite initiatives aimed at, aimed at cutting costs by gaining manufacturing efficiencies utilizing 3D printing and using less costly materials for the engines beyond Artemis 7, we found instead cost increases for future engines. I mean, they also say that there's no incentive for any kind of deep space transport to lower its prices. NASA has not committed to move to any kind of fixed price contracting, which means Boeing can basically raise prices all they want to. So because no one else can build the SLS rocket, because it's contracted to Boeing and Northrop, and they've pretty much got exclusivity on it, so no one can build new engines for the SLS. You know, And basically, what incentive do Boeing and Northrop have to reduce the costs of the engines? Finally, the report also mentions simply that history is a factor here, saying that in the mid-1990s, NASA transferred the space shuttle program from agency management to a commercial services contract, citing the goal of saving money. So, of course, Boeing and Lockheed Martin created a new company called United Space Alliance to provide shuttle services on a sole source basis like what will be done with the SLS, which means they're going to be the only place you could get it. And the report says that as a result of the transfer of space shuttle production and operations responsibilities from NASA to a commercial services contract, we estimate space shuttle costs increased by 38% to $1.45 billion per launch. So they said it, say, all right, you know, we're going to send this to a private company instead of as a contract kind of thing, and it ended up costing more money anyway because the companies that they contracted to anyway owned the company that they sent the private contract to. And that's pretty much what's going on with the SLS as well. Yeah, it's the the old boys network again, isn't it? Yeah, the old boys network. So Martin does make several recommendations, uh, stating that NASA should consider commercial heavy lift vehicles as an alternative to the SLS rocket for future missions, which seems kind of a no-brainer at this point. In our judgment, the agency should continue to monitor the commercial development of heavy lift space flight systems and begin discussions of whether it makes financial and strategic sense to consider these options as part of the agency's longer-term plans to support ambitious space exploration goals. Obviously, there are politics involved here because the whole idea of a heavy lift rocket was mandated by Congress back in 2010, so that's going to muddy the waters a little bit. You know, because th this whole mandate is what resulted in the SLS rocket and the Orion spacecraft because they had to keep the space shuttle people employed, which, okay, that itself is admirable, but the SLS was just not the way to do it. No. So, but unfortunately, Congress, because they really don't give a rat's rear end for a lot of things, they apparently don't seem to really care that there's more and more money going to the SLS. Maybe they consider it to be part of the defense initiative, that's why. Yeah, so now it's, it's clear based on this report anyway, that the SLS will never cost less than it does now, and it will almost certainly cost more in the future. And maybe it's about time for NASA to figure out ways to abandon this project, which is something that you and I have discussed quite a bit. Yeah, there's plenty of options out there. I mean, I've not got a problem with the Artemis program as, as it is. You know, to, sure. To, the idea behind it is great. The SLS, if, if you just cancel that part of it, yeah, uh, and you retrofit the Orion on other vehicles, 
then that reduces the cost straight away. We know the Orion fits on ULA rockets mm-hmm. because that's how they tested it in the first place. And mm-hmm. I mean, this might be just nitpicky, but, you know, they talk about how powerful the SLS is, and it is. It's one of the most powerful rockets ever made. But at the same time, the most powerful rocket made the Orion spacecraft take 60% longer than it took the Apollo missions to get to the moon. Mm-hmm. I don't understand that one. So the Saturn rockets, hello, little Lego Saturn sitting next to me. Uh, anyway, uh, it took three days to get to the moon, but it took five days for the SLS to get a capsule to the moon. I don't get it. Why? How? It's a more powerful rocket, you know. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all. No. Two plus billion dollars for a rocket launch. As much as I love space and so forth, that's that's tough. I'm sure that anybody who's listening is pulling a whole bunch of what about isms. What about this? What about this? And I'm not saying you're wrong. The fact that SpaceX ULA can launch all of these very powerful rockets mm-hmm. significantly cheaper than the SLS. You tell me what's going on here with the SLS. Yeah, it's just making profits for the old guard. That's all. That's basically yeah, yeah. what it is. I mean, and and you look at Boeing's hmm, success rate. When it came to the commercial crew uh, service, uh, mm-hmm. well, what's happened with that? Isn't Boeing behind the F-35 also? Or at least they're partially behind it, and that's $132 million for a plane. And uh, the RAF has bought a few of those as well. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's Lockheed Martin. Oh, is it? But still, Lockheed Martin is, is part you know, of the problem as well. They're part of the good old boy network too. It's It's frustrating. On a different note, <laughs> yeah, an ancient Bronze Age arrowhead discovered in Switzerland in the 19th century has revealed an unexpected origin. It's made of iron that fell from the sky. The arrowhead, as per findings published in the Journal of Archaeological Science, was made from a meteorite. But that's not all. Scientists have also made another surprising discovery that can help further our understanding of prehistoric humans. What's more intriguing about this find is that the meteorite is likely to have originated from as far away as Estonia. This highlights the extensive trade networks that existed thousands of years ago. The amazing find was made by geologist Beda Hoffman from the Natural History Museum of Bern and the University of Bern, who led the search for ancient artefacts made of meteoritic iron. Most meteoritic iron artefacts have been found in the Middle East, Egypt and Asia. However, a few have been discovered across Europe. The settlement of Morrigan in Switzerland, who were thriving during the Bronze Age around 800 to 900 BC, presented a promising location for such discoveries. It is close to the Twangberg field, known for meteoritic iron fragments from an ancient impact dating to before the last ice age. 
Narrowing down the sources, the researchers believed that Arrowhead best matches Kali Jav, a meteorite that fell around 1500 BC and scattered fragments suitable for reshaping into arrowheads. What's surprising is Kalajav's location, which is approximately 994 miles or 1,600 kilometres away from Morrigan, which suggests it's, it's possibly travelled enormous distances through ancient trade routes. I find that fascinating. I guess for me it's like the fact that it's a meteorite from before the Ice Age kind of makes sense. I mean, they're going to use what they find. But it's a fact that, you know, it's 1500 BC, so 994 miles in those days, that's that's the equivalent of traveling around the globe these days. Yeah, I don't know. I just actually watched a video the other day from a guy who's uh, he's an archaeologist, and he loves debunking idiot conspiracy theories mm-hmm. you know about oh hey this is here's proof that giants lived you know and here's the fact that because pyramids are around the world that it's alien technology that did it and he loves debunking that stuff and he just posted a video like two weeks ago maybe about an archaeological dig in turkey about a culture that goes back almost twelve thousand years and they had big stone monoliths they had a marketplace you know and he said that it's one of probably dozens of these collected areas where people got together and traded and hung out and did things like that and dating 12,000 years is actually really cool videos like half an hour long and he's, he's just talking about all of it and how they're digging it up in the archaeology and the fact that it had really intricate like animal drawings in, carved into the stone and so forth it was actually a really cool video if I can find it I'll, I'll link that one up to you. In comparison to that, you know, talking about something that might have been 1,500 years ago seems kind of quaint. <laughs> well, no, well, it's, it's 1,500 BC, so... Well, okay, all right, so, I don't know, it, it's like, compared to that to 12,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And one thing that he kept mentioning in his video was that we seem to never give ancient peoples enough credit for the work that they do. I've only got to look at things like Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. I mean, those rocks weren't local. They came from Wales and ended in, I think it's Wiltshire in, in, in England. You've seen the size of those rocks. I mean, getting those across country must have been a feat in itself. And then, oh, yeah. and then lifting them strategically in place... I mean, I don't know how much those those rocks weighed, but it's a big amount to try and get shifted. You know, not using any technology as such. I mean, you're basically you're using logs to move stuff about with. Mm-hmm. It takes some doing. Oh, absolutely. You know who Tom Scott is, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I love his videos. He just did one a couple of weeks ago about the extremely large telescope in Chile. All right. This is one of his longer format because, you know, normally his videos are like five minutes, six minutes, something like that. This one goes on for a half hour, and it talks about the extremely large telescope and then other telescopes in that area. But apparently, just based on his calculations and how this is going to be an optical telescope, that this is probably going to be the largest optical telescope that will ever be built. Just based on the physics of it and, you know, the technology and what we've got and so forth. It's like a 30-minute video, which is really cool, talking about how these telescopes work, how they maintain them. Even stuff like the nearby telescopes undergo a repair technique where they 
bring it down from the top of they would take the mirror section bring it down from the top of the mountain to this maintenance facility scrub off the aluminum coating and then apply a new aluminum reflective coating atom by atom layer by atom layer to make sure that it's like as perfectly reflective as possible but then he talks about the engineering behind this one and why it's likely the largest telescope that will ever be built from this point forward. He puts an asterisk on that one because who knows what's going to happen. Yeah. But it was a really cool video. Yeah, I would say definitely watch that. I was like, oh, this is cool. I just sat and watched the whole thing from start to finish. Now, asking the public to name things is a terrible idea. <laughs> just ask any sailor who nearly served on the good ship boat in McBoatface. Um, but here we go again, albeit in a less official capacity after an unofficial Twitter account appealed to the internet to name a probe that will shortly explore Uranus. Oh, God, no, 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 no! (laughs) The Uranus Orbiter and Probe is a project that NASA hopes will be launched sometime in the early 2030s. The mission would spend several years orbiting Uranus, possibly sending a probe down through its atmosphere to the surface. It could tell us a lot about the makeup of the ice giant, which is why such an important mission's name should not be left to the public. (laughs) However... Ice Giant Missions Twitter account at ExploreIGO asked its followers what the mission should be called. With an official looking poster image, a number of people took the question to mean that NASA itself was asking the question, but no trace of such a scheme is to be found on any official NASA sites, and given the mission is not yet green lit, it's unlikely that they'd ask people to come up with a name just yet. Now, some of the, and I'll say this in brackets, publishable naming suggestions received <laughs> have been shared by Ice Giant Missions. And to be fair, some were quite creative and made good use of NASA's love of acronyms and backronyms. Oh. Obviously, you had things like ANUS, which was Advanced New Uranus Space Mission, Rectum, research educating charging towards Uranus mission some were a little bit more obvious like Seymour Butts and Suppository and obviously Proby McProbeface of course made it onto the list now I've got a few of the funnier ones and some of the serious ones and both have come up with some quite good names I mean there's one called Butt which is uh, better Uranus telemetry tracking. One said, why not Bootylicious? <laughs> Deep Dive, Poop, or Planetary Orbit- Orbital Observation Probe. <laughs> Some of the more serious ones, these are really good, actually. Uh, you've got LaSalle, after astronomer William LaSalle, who discovered Uranus's moons aerial and um- umbriel. You've got Odin, the great Norse god who defeated ice giants. There's a few of them that are kind of Nordic in names, obviously because it's an ice giant. Muse, a mission Uranus science expedition. Georgium Sidus, which is the original name that Herschel, William Herschel, intended to call Uranus, but it upset the rest of the world naming it after King George III. Caroline, after astronomer Caroline Herschel, the sister of William Herschel, who assisted him in his discovery of Uranus. Seven, 
with the seven, uh, so S E figure seven E N. Uh, it's the seventh planet, and the odd spelling for its unusual axle tilt. One of my favourite ones is the Endurance Orbiter and the Shackleton Probe. The probe after the Antarctic explorer Ernest Shackleton and the Orbiter named after the ship that he sailed in. I, I quite like that one. And then there's Jontiheim, the uh, Norse distant realm of the ice mm. giants. As I say, there's a lot of Nordic folklore and mythology. Somebody actually said, why don't you call it Loki? <laughs> after the Nordic god, who also apparently defeated ice giants. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think all all Norse gods defeated ice giants. (laughs) There's a lot of that. And uh, the last one was Boreas, a Greek god of the north wind and bringer of winter. There's there's a good list there, but I'm not too sure about the the, the funny ones. (laughs) (laughs) This this is me. I would have just called it the Cartman because Cartman's known for his anal probes. (laughs) I actually would like to see a probe that could go down, not not to ruin the jokiness of it, but, I mean, a probe to reach the surface of the planet? I mean, they do realize it's like over a million times more pressure than Earth's atmosphere, right? Yeah. <laughs> that, that couldn't have been a red flag to a lot of people. I don't know that we could possibly build anything that could survive the atmosphere there. To take that sort of pressure, it's going to... It's going to take a lot to launch something of that density yeah. into space. Yeah. I mean, we might be able to get something to go partway into the atmosphere before it collapses, but we haven't done that with any of the other planets yet. Well, you know what? Shoot, I'm overthinking, and I'm ruining the moment. I don't want to. But I'm just thinking about how NASA does have that policy of they don't want necessarily to send things into the atmosphere like that because of fear of contamination. I guess that's only on certain worlds, though. Some worlds, I guess, I don't, they don't really expect it to be an issue. I guess that uh, that would be one of them. <laughs> you got to love the creativity in people. Yeah. I think it's the fact that people thought it was an official NASA thing because yeah. the, the poster that these guys have put up has got, you know, NASA logos and everything on there. It does look official. I mean, it's not for profit, so it's not necessarily illegal. Yeah, they're just being a goof. <laughs> You know, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if some NASA people also put some entries in there. I mean, judging by some of the videos that you get on there, you know, like that NASA Johnson style and all those kind of videos, some of these interns have probably submitted entries. (laughs) How about a little bit of Star Trek here? I I knew if we were going to go into sci-fi, you'd have to bring up Star Trek. (laughs) Well, this is just one of those things that it's like, those of us who are Trekkies keep holding out a little bit of hope. Supposedly, a Star Trek IV movie in the Kelvin timeline is still in the works. And this is just one of those things that ever since the last Star Trek Into Darkness, which was actually well-received by fans, but it didn't do too hot in the box office. Now, granted, we've had so much stuff with, like, Discovery and Picard and so forth. There is clearly a demand, according to writer-director Lindsay Anderson Beer... She said, it is still on the tracks, uh, saying, I love that project, and it was another one that I had to hop off to direct this movie, and that was a hard thing to do, but I loved that everybody involved with that project. So, apparently, it's still in the works, and this was actually also reflected by uh, Matt Shackman, who was going to direct it, but then hopped off of that project to direct the upcoming Fantastic Four movie. He also said earlier this year that as far as he knows, another Star Trek IV Kelvin timeline movie 
is still in the works. He says, I think what they're still working on is a version of what I have been working on for the time that I was involved. So maybe, maybe. The part that's weird about this one is that Paramount announced that they were going to make this movie without even talking to Chris Pine or Zachary Quinto or any of the cast. So they're just like, wait, what? We're making, a mo- we're making another movie? <laughs> they didn't even know. And Paramount's <laughs> announcing it, which is really stupid because now the people involved are going to say, well, since you've announced it, we're going to want more money. And I don't blame them, you know, but it's like, that was a dumb move. But apparently it's still going on. We're going to have to wait and see. Cool. I don't have the exact details, but Lower Decks was, was it Lower Decks? No, no. One of them was just recently pulled off of Paramount+. Plus. I don't think it was Lower Decks. Was that Strange New Worlds? It wasn't Strange New Worlds either, because they've had the second season. I can't remember. One of them was pulled off of Paramount+. Plus After just one season, there was such demand to bring it back, it's coming back on one of the other streaming channels. Ah, it might have been... Um, oh, the one that's got Janeway in it. Um, animated one. Prodigy, is it? Star Trek Prodigy? Prodigy, 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 Prodigy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Paramount Plus decided to do what HBO and a bunch of other channels did. Like, well, we want a tax write-off, so we're just going to cancel this series completely. And there was such demand to bring it back that it's actually coming back on a different... I think it's coming back on Netflix, actually. Okay. Have you seen who's helping to design the spacesuits for the moon mission? No. Believe it or not, Prada... I did read that. I did read. I didn't read the article, but I remember seeing the headline and thinking, "Are you serious?" NASA astronauts will be flying in style with luxury fashion designer Prada helping to design spacesuits for the 2025 moon mission. The Italian fashion house will work to design the suits alongside another private company, Axiom Space, which we've been doing a lot with uh, SpaceX recently. In a press release, Axiom said Prada would bring expertise with materials and manufacturing to the project. One astronaut told the BBC that he thought Prada was up to the challenge due to their design experience. That experience has been built not only on the catwalks of Milan, but through Prada's involvement in the um, America's Cup sailing competition. Prada has considerable experience with various types of composite fabrics, which may actually be able to make some real technical contributions to the outer layers of the new spacesuit, according to Professor Jeffrey Hoffman, who flew five NASA missions and has carried out four spacewalks. But he said that people should not expect to see astronauts in paisley spacesuits or any fancy patterns like that. Uh, Maintaining a good thermal environment is really critical when it comes to dealing with the moon. A spacesuit is really like a miniature spacecraft. It has to provide pressure, oxygen, and keep you at a reasonable temperature, he said. Earlier this year, Axiom unveiled a spacesuit, which it said would be worn on the upcoming Artemis 3 mission. The suit weighed 55 kilograms and is said to be a better fit for female travellers. In a press release, Artemis and Prada said that they would use innovative technologies and design to allow greater exploration of the lunar surface than ever before. The Artemis 3 mission featuring the Prada designs will follow Artemis 2, which will involve flying a capsule around the moon late next year or early 2025. 
The Artemis II will have the first woman and the first black astronaut ever assigned to a lunar mission with Christina Cook and Victor Glover, respectively. So, yeah, I mean, if they're, you know, textile management and, and, and fabric technology, if that's what they they excel at, then there's no reason why they shouldn't be involved with the mission. No, no, you're right. I mean, it's one of those things that on the surface, it's like, really, really? But when you mention it that way and you talk about it that way, yeah, that makes sense. If they're up to the task, and they should be. I mean, if they've been creating stuff for the America's Cup, which, you know, yeah. there's some harsh conditions when you're sailing, mm-hmm. then, you know, you can deal with other harsh conditions as well. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't put it past someone like Helly Henson to, to be involved somewhere along the line. No, no that makes sense. That, that does make sense when you mention it that way. You ready to go back to some Star Wars? Yeah, go on. So, both of these are auction-related, actually. So, Anthony Daniels is putting up some of the stuff that he owns in his collection up for auction next month. And one of them is one of his screen-matched light-up C-3PO heads from the original Star Wars. I refuse to call it a new hope. Apparently, this is the, the crown jewel of the auction that's going on next month and is expected to fetch between 575000 to $1.1 million. So this is, a, like I said, it's part of a collection currently owned by Anthony Daniels. Uh, hopefully we'll find a home. You know this is going to go to someone who really wants this collection piece. But, you know, you've you've seen this, the if you pay close attention in the movie, like he's, it's got the bashed-in part of his head yeah. Yeah. In, in the upper. That's it. So this is the one that was actually used in the movie. Uh, he said that I'm thrilled that Prop Store has agreed to curate my collection, and I trust that the pieces will go into the right hands. Well, hopefully, for that mo- for that amount of money, nobody's going to pay that much money and mistreat it. I'm sure. It says uh, I hope this can bring pleasure to Star Wars fans and collectors all around the world, and give them a chance to own a piece of the real thing. Not many collectors are going to be able to own one million dollars in items. I mean, it, it's going to be one of the original light-up heads from the movie that he wore. It's also going to include other items, including a pair of C-3PO fingers, an unopened C-3PO cereal box, and his handwritten Ewok village speech, a page from that from Return of the Jedi. So that alone is expected to bring in between 1500 to $3,000. i am sorry, was I saying dollars? Oh, they mixed it up here. They were mixing up uh, dollars and pounds within the article. So they're expecting that page alone to fetch between 1,500 and 3,000 pounds. So there's that one. But the big one is that if you listen to my previous podcast, you know about this. A little bit of self-marketing there. But there was a Star Wars X-Wing fighter, one of four, that was considered to be lost for several decades. So this is one of the original four that was used for close-up shots during the Death Star trench run and just the, the attack of the Death Star. So they got three of them. There was a fabled fourth one that was recently found after, what, four decades now? So they finally found this thing. It's a 20-inch model of the X-Wing Starfighter that was used for Red One, so Red Leader. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it's just one of four of the filming miniatures that was used. It has articulating wings. It's got lights and was built for all of the close-ups. So this thing went missing. And they had no idea whatever happened to it, but they found one of the guys who worked on the, uh, the filming and the prop making back from the original movie. He had it, and he had it stored, safely packed away in his attic. Let me find his name here. 
Greg Jean, that's right. So, yeah, it, and this is considered to be like the absolute golden egg for Star Wars because of the legend behind it and because it's the last of one of four items that were actually used during the filming. So this one was recently put up for auction and because of partially the legend behind it and how the fact that it was in mint condition after four decades because of the way he packed it away. This is the highest selling Star Wars item ever at $2.6 million. <laughs> 2.6. Uh, and the one thing that they said that uh, for those of us that grew up in the 70s or 80s and those of us that work in visual effects, this model is as significant a find as the ruby red slippers or the Maltese Falcon. Uh-huh. $2.6 million for a 20-inch movie X-Wing. I wish I had that kind of money. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not for people like us. You'd be scared to touch it. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, there's, there's another guy I follow on TikTok and YouTube called Michael Corey, and he, his, uh, his channel is called Props to History. Mm-hmm. And, and his channel is all about movie props. That's, that's, what, he, that's what he does. He builds movie props, and, and he's just well-known in the circles for being able to identify props and so forth. In fact, he, he just recently was hired by Earl Hayes Press, the press company that prints all the paper stuff and cartons and so forth for Hollywood to document a lot of the stuff that is in their archives that they simply haven't been keeping track of. You know, including the original plates for the bearer bonds from Die Hard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, stuff like that. You know, and just all of these items. He found the original plates to print off the ID passes for Blade Runner. You know, things like that. I love his channel. And he's always talking about all these props and so forth. And he's held a couple of the original Ghostbusters, Star Wars, Star Trek, you know, all those kinds of props. And he'll just show those, especially when an auction is coming on, he'll show some of the some of the props that they're auctioning off. And he'll be there with the white gloves holding them and talking about them. I'm just like, oh, dude, I'm so jealous. That would be so cool. Wow, yeah. But at the same time, I'm also happy with my Saturn V Lego. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. .weebly.com That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com So John, who would have thought it that we've made it nine years? Well, I mean, I certainly wouldn't have. <laughs> I mean, when you con- when you contacted me out of the blue, it's like, hey, do you want to do a space podcast? I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, yeah, I can't believe we're approaching ten years. Just the fact that, not even the ten years, but that the fact that it's Almost 10 years. <laughs> We're getting old, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thunk? And we still have not had a chance to meet. No. That's the annoying part. That is. And it, it will come. I mean, we'll... It will. Hopefully there's going to be events in the future that we can um, get together. Yeah. It, it doesn't seem possible that we've been doing this for that long and haven't actually met it doesn't. 
It, no, it doesn't, but, you know, when we got a big-ass ocean between us... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the price of transport is not exactly cheap, is it? No, no, it's not. Don't, don't get me wrong, I, I will look for any opportunity to fly back over there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, just cards, not in the cards right now, we'll get there, we'll get there. So we've been, unfortunately, not being able to uh, produce a the episodes that we've been wanting to lately yeah. uh, but we do intend to improve on that i hope you enjoyed what you have been listening in this episode because it's been a while since we've been able to talk together we do enjoy mm-hmm. doing this kind of stuff so that leaves me with one thing left to say uh, and that's thanks for listening stay safe and we'll speak to you again real soon and have a safe halloween back well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. If you want to get in touch with us, then... Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com, where your input is our output. Or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn. And you can listen to me going solo, bringing you the latest in movies and home theater for regular people in the Widescreen podcast over at widescreen.org. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.